In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I want to start a little differently today by... Jacob Kiefer could come down front for just a moment. So Jacob Kiefer has served alongside in our youth ministry for some years. Um, as you get a look at him, you realize he's also a stunt double for Mr. Clean. And that's right, it's Jacob Kiefer right there, ladies and gentlemen. Jacob Kiefer has many distinctives. Good morning to you. How are you? It's good. Very, how about you? I'm well. Very good to see you. So uh, Jacob Kiefer has many gifts. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of all things film, right? So what have you seen most recently? What have you liked about it? I saw the new John Wick movie. Okay. Although it was very good. You like that? Yeah. You like John John Wick, Keanu Reeves, right? Yes, yes, yes. Formerly known as Neo. Neo. Neo, yes. right, right. So, um, anything else that you really liked these days that you appreciated? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to the Mario movie. <laughs> there was no malice in that. There was nothing but love in that attempt. I've just demonstrated for you the nature of life. True. <laughs> in this moment, in this life, there are things coming your way that you will never be ready for. You're going to get pushed. You're going to get pushed. See? Wisdom. This is the definition of growing in wisdom because if, you know, it's things like, see, he's ready. He's ready. It's the nature of wisdom. It's the nature of understanding the way of things. In this world, stuff will come your way for which you are not prepared that is a true kind of push. And there are, the question that's before us always is what, what, what is available to us that might help us keep our feet? We've been listening to a letter for a long time that Paul wrote to a bunch of New churches in what is called Ephesus then, what is now Turkey. And he has told us that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that we are his on account of his work, that's like music. That's like music that goes deep, that you have available to you at any moment that you might call forth to steal you and to, you know, to hold you forth and to keep you. And that song that reaches deep is also to prepare you for a dance, a life. And in this life, the question is, what can we do to prepare ourselves for things for which we do not expect and never could? What you just saw in love. Give me a hug. Come on. Come on. Bring it in. Bring it in. Bring it in. I did that in love for your sake and his. What can we expect and how can we respond? We're going to spend two weeks on a very famous or depending on where you're coming from, an infamous passage in Ephesians chapter 6. We're nearly done. And it is talking about things that you heard hearkening back to the very beginning of our service. Is there good and evil? Is there light and dark? Obviously, from where this Ephesians 6 comes from, the answer is yes. There's going to be a push that we'll call opposition from here on out. But we're going to spend two weeks on it because it deserves that. It probably deserves a lot more than that. But what we're going to come to the conclusion of on just the first four verses this morning is three things. One... There will be a push, period. Two, there is more to that push than meets the eye. And three, your strength to face that push is beyond you. That's the contention of this four verses. We're going to read all of 6, 10 through 20. We're just going to focus on the first four verses. Ladies and gentlemen, would you give it up for Jacob Keeper?
He's a good guy. I am a good, guy. a good guy. I'm a good guy. That's right. So I wonder if you might prepare yourself and um, focus your attention on what we're about to do. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. Would you stand as we hear it? What a bully. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, all the way to verse 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may, able, may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the sobering word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may sit. Thank you. If you and I knew nothing about the Gospels, if we had never laid our eyes on anything that is contained in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we could still pick up just from the first four verses of Paul's passage here, a reason to believe that the way of Jesus will experience a push, that there will be opposition. And all you have to do is look at two features that are fairly prominent in just the first four verses. One, how he begins, be strong. And then also, four more times, Throughout the the entirety of the passage, some version of the word stand. Stand, stand, stand against, withstand, stand firm. That is all shorthand. He's not just saying stand at attention. He's talking about steadfastness. He's saying to us, steady bloke, steady, keep your feet about you. Just those two features are meant to show us, meant to suggest to us that there is opposition coming our way. You know, there, you know uh, yes, maybe you saw Braveheart. How many times do you hear William Wallace say, hold, hold, right? Like, stay there, boys. Or in, in, in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, you know, uh, uh, Khan, you know, hands their aft section to them, to put it away, and um, every, a lot of people die. And they, you, know, go, you go down to the infirmary, and, and there's Scotty carrying a, a dying recruit. And he says, the rest of the recruits, they left. But this one, this one stayed at his post. This one kept his feet. There's a historian of the third century named Polybius who, who in his history 
about centurions, he, he described them this way. They don't desire them so much to be men who will initiate attacks and open the battle, but men who will hold their ground when worsted and hard-pressed and be ready to die at their posts. That's just all a metaphor or an example of what it means to walk in the way of Jesus. There is going to be a fierce headwind and there's no way around it. If you think this life is going to be all wine and roses and a yellow brick road, you have been misinformed. If I have given you that impression, then I apologize. There is a headwind. He's calling us to be strong. That's why we read that long passage from the Old Testament, from Joshua. Twice, three times, you hear him say, be strong and courageous. Why does why do we need to hear why does Joshua need to hear that? Because apparently in the task that was set before him there would be opposition that would require his resilience. And in the course of that opposition he would be tempted to a failure of nerve. That's why you're calling you to courageousness. That's the nature of our world here. Uh, late in C.S. Lewis's famous book Mere Christianity which turned my world around in college kind of set before me a very sumptuous feast about what did it mean to understand Jesus and to walk in his way. Uh, there's, a, there's a chapter late in that book that uh, is entitled, Is Christianity Hard or Easy? And naturally, Lewis, being what he is, says, how about both? He, he puts it this way, the Christian way is different, harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked. I want the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. That doesn't sound like a day at the spa. <laughs> it is hard. It is easy. It is both. And if you never knew about C.S. Lewis or never read Mere Christianity, and all you had was Paul's letter to the Ephesians, you would go, yep, sounds both hard and easy. Four times we heard him use the word walk. Walk worthily of the calling to which you've been called. Walk in love. Walk in white light. Walk in wisdom, which is all there to say to us, it ain't going to be a walk in the park. When he talks about bringing together Jew and Gentile under the same roof, into the same community, what does that imply? If you're in that day, Jews and Gentiles had prior, real, deep, entrenched differences that would make it very difficult for them to look at each other and go, I love you, I love you back. They wouldn't do that. Mistakes would be made. Feelings would be hurt. Harm would be done. Forgiveness would be required. It's uphill. It's uphill. When he talks in chapter 4 about immaturity, longing to be mature, what does he say will go along the way? Between immaturity and maturity, there is a high proneness to deception and self-deception. And you will have to learn not to be deceived by that. And then later, in late, at the end of chapter 4, into chapter 5, he says, you've got to figure out what to do with your anger. You've got to feel out to do with your words, with your private parts, about immaturity, immorality, and idolatry. 
about the the difficult, delicate dance of love and submission in marriage, in the struggle to know what it means to work with all diligence, in the minefield of being a kid and being a parent, all of that, there will be opposition. And that's just talking about the way of Jesus within our own hearts and among the people of God. That's, That's an opposition, just here and here. It's already there, but pan out a little bit. The opposition does not just come from within your own heart. It does not just come from within a people that all claim the same Jesus. It also comes from the wider world in which you are set. If you will follow him, it is only a matter of time before you will be seen by others as, that's odd, you, you hold on to something rather old and in most instances come off as rather obsolete. That's how you'll be viewed. Are you going to be okay with that? Along the way, you will be seen not just as the bearer of some sort of quaint philosophy, but quite perhaps a very dangerous delusion that you embody, that you live for, that you give money to, that you give your time to. You will be seen in that way. Such that people will look at the history of the church and the plentiful examples of abuse, and exploitation, and injustice, and hypocrisy, and people will begin to associate those examples with the belief and faith itself. And they will conclude that the more they marginalize you, denigrate you, silence you, whatever word you want to choose, it will be viewed, that effort, as actually working for the greater good. That's opposition. And it's real. And it's uneven. You know, what you hear, experience here in Western North Carolina is nothing compared to other places. But the way of his world and his way, there will be opposition. And it doesn't just come from within your heart. It comes from the outside. There will be a push. But now we need to ratchet it up a little bit. That's the first thing he's there to persuade us of. You and I will encounter opposition, full stop. But now he wants to shift into a higher gear here to suggest to us that some opposition we will face, let's just say there's more to it than meets the eye. And he puts his cards on his table very quickly about the origin and source of that opposition when he says at the end of verse 11, stand against the schemes of the devil. (laughs) Okay. The devil. Some of you are here going, oh gosh, this is not the search I thought it was. Let's talk about it. What do we do with that? What do we do with the devil as he is so termed? Is, are, are we not kind of beyond that? Does that not hearken to an old day in which everything was a demon? Thank you. I think, appreciate it for registering implicitly your complaint, perhaps, or your thought. Even among Christians, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know if I can get my head around that one very well. Cool. Let's just listen for a moment. Let's engage with the material that is before us, and then we can perhaps think about it. Let me, let me hearken to Lewis again. He says this uh, about where we are. We are in enemy-occupied territory. That is what the world is. Not only that it is inhabited by living things, but it is actually occupied by what is not of this world. And then he goes on to say, I know someone will ask me, do you really mean at this time of day to reintroduce our old friend the devil, hoofs and horns and all? Well, what the time of day has to do with it, I don't know. 
And I'm not particular about the hoofs and horns, but in other respects, my answer is, yes, I do. I don't claim to know anything about his personal appearance. If anybody really wants to know him better, I would say to that person, don't worry. If you really want to, you will. Whether you like it when you do is another question. (laughs) Now, here is a public intellectual in the middle of the 20th century who, for a very long time, thought the whole faith was simply mad. And anybody that held to it was simply fooling themselves. And then at some point along the way, he was persuaded that that which was foolish was actually true, including the parts that believed that this world is more to it than meets the eye, and that there are forces engaged within it that are more than material or mortal. And so that's one voice. That's one version of a persuasive comment. Let's pan out just a little bit here. Let's back up just a little bit more and get a little bit more context because that's one form of persuasion. What else? Unless Jesus is just a historical fabrication, a made-up figure, and you will find no credible atheist historian who holds to that idea. Everybody believes there was a Jesus. Unless you think he was just a historical fabrication or believe that the stories about him are just embellishments about a real figure that was just out to pay honor to him. Or you believe, unless Jesus, anytime he starts referring to Satan or an adversary or demons or whatever, unless that's just him projecting his fears into a personified view of darkness, unless all of that is true, then what Jesus speaks of in the way of an adversary and accuser, then that's real, and we have to reckon with it. Paul is simply echoing what we see in plentiful nature, in plentiful examples, in all of the Gospels, Jesus' references to that which is not of this world and yet occupies this world. And you think, okay, um, it's another voice, uh, clearly of historical pedigree, Can we back up just a little bit more and say, if you have a problem with the devil, it's really because you have a problem with God as a concept, as a category. If you can make space for the idea that there's a God, that there is actual real, invisible, spiritual, personal intelligence that is responsible for all things in some way, if you can can even countenance that possibility, then here's the deal. If you can go there, then it is just as irrational to deny the possibility of an opposing force that has similar features to God as it is irrational to blame every event on the world on those opposing forces. Now, that was a mouthful. Let me say that again. If you can hold space for the idea of God, then it is just as irrational to think it's impossible that there might be personal spiritual evil as it is irrational to think that everything that happens is because of a demon. If you have a devil problem, it's because you have a God problem first. Here's where we go. Paul teases out, therefore, in verse 12, what is the nature of this world in which the schemes of the devil seem to be at work? He says this in verse 12. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
That's the world we're in. You have to sit with that a little bit. You have to at least reckon with it and simmer on it. Now, it's not as if he just sort of has said a bunch of things about ethics and about love and grace and peace, and then all of a sudden, boom, spiritual forces of darkness. It's like he's developed it. Here's the crescendo. What do we hear in chapter one from him? That there is a dimension that is unseen and real and spiritual, and he calls it the heavenly places. And then later in chapter three, it's those who inhabit the heavenly places who are looking and learning about the wisdom of God in the gospel by what they see going on in the church. Somehow, the church is teaching those of that nature in that dimension. And then here in chapter 6, there is a subset of that dimension that is literally hell-bent on opposing everything that God has an interest in. He doesn't spring it on us. He's developed it over time, and here we are. That's the opposition. And there's more to that opposition than meets the eye, to put it in a certain if you move, euphemistic way. That's the claim. Okay, fine. What do we do with that? Because whether you believe in God or not, whether you have any respect for Jesus or not, everybody in this room at some level has a little bit of a tension within them, perhaps, when they hear claims like that. And if you think you do, Anybody outside this room has a lot bigger tension. Uh, to kind of set that up, I want to show you a, a, a brief mashup of two scenes from two different stories. In, in both stories, they have this in common. They're encountering something that seems pretty awful, but for which they cannot give a name to. And there is a struggle to put their hands on it, to get their head around it. One is from M. Night Shyamalan's film, Devil. The other one is from another film called The Outsider. And you're going to see that tension in real time between the two stories. Consider what's up. A crime is at work. What is its nature? How shall we understand it? You should see the face. No. What face? No, nothing. I saw a face. Like there's no face. Tell him about the face. No, like Ramirez is kind of religious. Just ignore him. Trust me. Detective? I see. That's what you're talking about? Everybody believes in him a little bit. Even guys like you who pretend they don't. What's this? An apology note left at the site of a hit and run. My wife and son were killed out on Bethlehem Pike five years ago, but that's okay, because whoever did it is sorry. You can tell by the heartfelt apology on the back of a car wash coupon. So no, I don't believe in the devil. We don't need him. People are bad enough by themselves. You know, even when I was a kid, I didn't believe in anything. Not God. Not the devil. Santa Claus. Superman. Boogeyman. None of it. But now I believe if there's something else out there, it's worse than I ever imagined. You're right to believe. So what is it? 
vampire. Satan. Joker. A guilty conscience. I don't know. How old is it? I don't know. My age? Centuries? Before the Big Bang? Is there just the wanders? Or others? I don't know. I'm sorry. Some in this world will have seen enough of evil in their place, but the only reason they call it evil is because they just think it's really awful. And they might say to us, look, you can believe in your demons, but I've just seen enough of humanity, and they're bad enough on their own. They don't need to appeal to anything beyond them. They're just awful. And, and I understand that, and we can sympathize with it. And then there are others who have seen wickedness and, and realize, um, I think there's more to this than just brain chemistry and that their parents might have mistreated them. Something's up. Something's at work. But in respect for you and respect for anybody in this room that maybe thinks, okay, this is really off the, reser- off the radar, crazy, let's not talk about this anymore. Look, let me, let me acknowledge two possible objections you have to this one. Some people will say, if you'll just look at history, there are enough examples of cultural sensibilities and social and political structures that get developed that are deep and wide and layered and thick and entrenched. And you know what? Those are a pretty good explanation of what's wrong with the world. And I don't need to appeal to any kind of personal, demonic, spiritual forces in order to account for that. Humanity does a really good job of their own wickedness. And I hear that. But what's implied in that kind of objection? What's implied is a false choice. That it has to be either or. You people say there's personal spiritual forces out there. We just look at history and go, there's just stuff that's awful, that's layered over time, and it just sort of developed, and there was no will behind it. It just happened. There's the tension. My, my response, oversimplified as it may be, is to this. Why does it have to be either or? Why can't it be both in some way? Why can't there be some sort of intermingling? Hannah Arendt is a Jewish historian who studied the aftermath of the Holocaust. And before the Nuremberg trials, in which one co-conspirator of the Nazis, uh, Adolf Eichmann, came and gave testimony, before she ever saw him in person at the trials in Nuremberg, she spoke of the world as it was, thinking about the Holocaust as the way it was. She put it this way, The reality of concentration camps resembles nothing so much as a medieval picture of hell. She has that. She saw it that way. But then when she went and sat and listened to him give testimony at the trial, she kind of decided, you know, um, his version of evil was rather boring. She called it banal. This guy, she concluded, was just a, a guy who was trying to advance his career and he... He couldn't think for himself, and he just subjected himself to group thinking. You know, there was nothing really insidious about it. He just was doing his job. So even in somebody like Hannah Arendt, who has lived through the Holocaust and has seen him in his own eyes, she, she feels that tension. But listen to Adolf Eichmann himself 
as he's given testimony at the Nuremberg trials. He puts this. I, the cautious bureaucrat, that was me. Yes, indeed. But this cautious bureaucrat was attended by a fanatical Nazi warrior fighting for the freedom of my blood, which is my birthright. The dude did not have retractable horns. He did not have fangs in the back of his mouth. He did not have fire in his eyes. But he believed a pure German race was a social good, and that which he called good was actually evil, and that which he thought was evil was actually good. Friends, what he and others were capable of should at least suggest to you that there is something more at work here than just that which is material or mortal. It's a false choice to have to pick between the two. Okay, maybe there's some credibility to that idea, but what about this? The other objection you might have is this. Are you saying, Patrick, that I should just sort of put all of my errors and sins and I should lay them at the feet of a demonic personal presence that does everything that I do? No. When Paul says our, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, he doesn't mean he doesn't mean we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. He just says not to account for what might be upstream of it is silly and foolish. When Paul rattles off all the things that we contend with, division within the church, what we do with our anger, what we do with our words, what we do with our, our intimate parts, what we do with everything, he, he doesn't at the same time say, make sure you pray against the devil on your shoulder that's telling you to you know, get angry with somebody. He doesn't say it. The first words out of Jesus' mouth in Mark chapter 1 is repent, not run from the demons. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, prompted by the Spirit, as if to suggest to us this. It is not as if we don't have some sort of will in the game here. He is saying, though, be very careful. Be very careful of hand-waving away the possibility that there are influences awake, influences in action. It's the nature of our world. To assume that the only opposition that we face is from within us or among us, you are going to have to ask yourself, who is Jesus contending with and the temptations? Is that just a projection of his fears because he hasn't eaten in several days? Who is he going after? We like to think of Jesus as a, as a sage, as, a, as an ethical person, as a, a teacher of wisdom, as one who demonstrated compassion like no one else did. But we also have to conceive of him, if we're going to take him on his own terms, as a warrior. When he comes to the table, he is there to address our need of forgiveness, but he is just like one of those boys that you see lined up in the ranks, going to war, and everybody's throwing flowers on them because they know these folks are going into battle for them. That's what the table is, as much as an invitation to forgiveness by him. There's more to this opposition than meets the eye. His world is full of opposition. And the question is, what do we do about it? Because so far, I have left you at best with a very broad overview. I haven't told you about how do those unseen forces interact with seen forces. I, don't, I can't exactly explain that. 
Paul doesn't try. I'm not going to also. Somebody told me, where the text is silent, you'd be silent. I'm going to zip it. At other moments, I, I, you know, the other question is, how, how do I discern between what is just something that I'm struggling with and something that might be more than just what I'm struggling with? Again, um, stick around for next week. We'll talk about the whole armor of God, whatever that is. What I would like to suggest to you in this final point is this. There is a push. There's more to that push than meets the eye. And the strength to lean into the push is beyond you. And if you weren't sure about where that idea comes from, look, what does he say in the very first verse? Be strong. Now that is the English Standard Version translation. Be strong. Be strong! I think there's a better translation in a different version called the New English Translation. It honors the, ten, the voice of the verb better. It's actually be strengthened. Not gird up your loins and be strong, but what you need does not reside within you. You must receive it. It's in the passive voice. Be strengthened. Take what I will give you that you might be strong in that, in the strength of his might, not in the strength of yours. Some of you are naturally courageous in some ways, maybe not always for the right reasons. He is asking for us to receive a certain strength by that which we need. That's a better translation of it. And that's why he picks very vivid imagery in order to receive that strength by speaking of it as the whole armor of God. And next week, we will do a little bit more detailed book at what he even means by that and what does it mean to respond to that or even think of it. For now, I think the takeaway from this is that in light of what I've already said, this is inviting a certain kind of posture, a certain kind of attitude. And what is the attitude of believing that there is more that meets the eye to this push and you don't have the strength that's within you? I think that it's threefold and it'll go very quickly. You and I are invited to an attitude of assurance. You are not meant to leave here going, oh my gosh, I am helpless. You are not helpless. In Colossians 2, he speaks of how Jesus had come to disarm the principalities and the powers. He did that in the cross. Full stop. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Jesus was made like us in every way except without sin. And he came to destroy the one who has the keys of death, that is the devil, that we might no longer be subjected to the lifelong slavery of the fear of death. Jesus has done that at the cross. You are not defenseless. You are not hopeless. You are not helpless. You and I need to embrace that posture of assurance if we were to think about what it means to stand and be steadfast in light of this. Assurance is appropriate. And in light of that assurance, defiance is encouraged. In one of the very earliest baptismal vows that people would take when they became members of the church in the early third century, the second vow that they would give would go like this. I renounce thee, Satan, and all thy works, and all thy pomp, and all thy service. Maybe we should reintroduce that in the way we do baptisms around here to renounce it, to step away from it. To, to, in Russia, they, when they're mad at somebody, they want to curse somebody, they spit. It's a thing. I renounce you. 
I renounce who you are. I step upon your face. I, I walk away. I wash my hands of it. I, I renounce you. You are dead to me. Uh, not to put it trivially, but Martin Luther said this. I resist the devil, and often it is with a fart that I chase him away. <laughs> Greg, I have a great idea for a game at the high school retreat. <laughs> it will be very spiritual. And Jacob can lead. <laughs> Defiance is real, and it is appropriate, whatever means are necessary. But inasmuch as you might and I live with assurance and also in defiance, I think it also requires, finally, an, a posture of vigilance. Ignaz Semmelweis, not to be confused with Edelweiss, was a Hungarian obstetrician of the mid-19th century. And in that day, most deliveries of babies were not done in a hospital and not done by a doctor. So obstetrics was new, but still not widespread enough for that to happen. It was either, you got the little brother, Festus, go get me a handsaw to cut off your baby girl's, your baby daughter's, you know, uh, umbilical cord. It was like that. Or you had a midwife. But Ignaz Semmelweis began to do an analysis there and discovered that women who were delivering with the help of doctors or medical students were encountering far more maternal mortality after the birth than those who were using midwives. Like 88% more maternal deaths when doctors were delivering the babies than when midwives were. And the midwives were saying, uh-huh, let me tell you a thing or two. Would you listen? Nobody would listen. Semmelweis does his own analysis, and he discovers that most of the doctors and med students that are delivering babies, they had just come from doing autopsies. <laughs> Trust the science. And he wrote papers, and he did analysis, and he says, I think the problem is you are coming with bacteria on your hands, and you are delivering babies, and the women are dying. And so he did his own randomized control trial. Maybe. He, he had everybody, doctors, wash themselves in, in chlorine-lime solution. And the more, maternal mortality rate sunk. And you know what? Nobody would listen to him. None of his colleagues. The midwives were saying, welcome to the party. But nobody else. None of his colleagues. My analogy is imperfect. Some bacteria is great. But right then, he was discerning that there was a world that was real but was unseen, that any of us could marshal reasons for not believing it's even there very easily, but the longer we dismissed the possibility that there was that kind of world, the more foolish we were becoming and subjecting people to peril. Vigilance simply means this. In any given crisis, five things are true of you. You have a body. If you don't account for your body, it can do all sorts of numbers on you. If you don't account for that, you're in trouble. You also have a soul. I don't care how healthy your body is. You can have a wonderful body and a soul that is corrupt. You have to account for that. You also have to account for having a history that has shaped you in ways that you are somewhat barely sensible of. And you have a set of circumstances that you have to figure out. And, and fifth, you also have a set of beliefs some of which you are aware of and some of which you are not. If you don't account for all of those five things, you don't even know how to respond. Body, soul, history, circumstances, beliefs. But I think vigilance means you have to consider a sixth. 
that there are forces that live in the shadow. And they would love nothing more than to see you hobbled and crippled. That's vigilance. And that's why we come to the table. Because like I said, he is there to restore to us the belief that God is fulfilling his covenant and giving us a new heart and a new spirit by the blood that he will shed for his own sacrifice. But friends, in that moment, he is not there going to wage a battle with his own fear about death. He is there to wage a battle with the one who holds the keys of death. And that's why we do this all the time. It's not just a thing we do to remember something. It is also to receive something. That's the posture we have to take in the light of where it is. And I thank you for listening. Let's pray. So in whatever way we need to contend this day, I pray that you would give us uh, insight and clarity not to be obsessed, but also not to be dismissive. What we need is what you have, and what you have, you are not stingy with. So we pray your mercy as we come to this table to be blessed by what we need. In Jesus' name, amen.